A reading from Genesis. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived for 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said to her, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are Elroy, the God who sees. Here ends the reading. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. What makes a good midlife crisis? (laughs) Well, first, it usually occurs midlife, somewhere between 40 and 60, and that's kind of a generous range. It involves time spent with younger people in a throwback to pleasurable activities no longer deemed age-appropriate. And it often involves expensive luxury items that reflect the purchasing power of middle age, but the enjoyment that only youth can provide. I had a midlife crisis of my own when I moved to Connecticut in 2009. My luxury item was Divinity School at Yale University. It cost about as much as a hot new sports car, but the only part of it that went fast was the four years that it took me to complete my work. Make no mistake, I spend a lot of time with much younger people enjoying a throwback to my own youth. In doing so, I did all the things I wish I'd done in college the first time. I attended the visiting lectures of obscure professors lecturing on esoteric topics. I went to concerts. I read the Yale Daily News. (laughs) 
In May of 2012, as I was completing my final exams after my first year at Divinity School and reveling in my midlife return to a campus and a semblance of being youthful, I read a brilliant Yale Daily News essay by a writer named Marina Keegan called The Opposite of Loneliness. Keegan was a Yale senior at the time, and it was her last essay for the Yale Daily News before graduation. It was also her last essay. She was tragically killed in a car accident five days after graduation, making her essay go viral and her words even more poignant. Here's what she says. We don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that's what I want in life. It's not quite love and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together, who are on your team. And when I sit down in a giant room at this place where thousands of people have sat before me, and when I am alone in the middle of the night, in the middle of a New Haven storm, I feel so remarkably, unbelievably safe. We don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, that's how I'd say I feel at Yale. How I feel right now, here, with all of you, in love, impressed, humbled, and sometimes scared. And we don't have to lose that. Sadly, the word, the world did lose Marina. And her words were always staying with the sadness of a beautiful life lost far too soon. Yet I'm confident that her amazing essay and its resonant metaphor would have stayed with me because it so captured what it meant to be young and to connect with other emerging adults at a defining point in life and just how special that feeling is. On an evening walk this summer, when I was listening to something in my NPR library of podcasts, I heard someone comment on the opposite of loneliness. I perked up, wondering if they were going to reference this amazing Keegan essay that meant so much to me. They didn't. They gave a different definition of the opposite of loneliness, which also hit me. They said that the opposite of loneliness was being seen. The opposite of loneliness is being seen. I chose today's reading because it's an amazing story and it shows where God sees us. Most people know that Abraham is the father of three major monotheistic religions in the world today. Of course, there's a fabulous backstory. As the story goes, God chooses Abraham and promises him a great nation and countless descendants to make that great nation. However, the logistics of how that might happen aren't quite clear since Abraham and Sarah are childless and in their 80s. At some point, Abraham and Sarah decide that the only way this promise will be fulfilled is if Sarah allows Abraham to impregnate Hagar, one of her servants. And so he does. 
To no one's surprise, jealousy and tensions between Sarah and Hagar escalate, and Hagar runs away in desperation. Yet in her loneliness and sadness and despair, she encounters an angel from God who asks her where she is going. She is told that she will bear a son and that she will call him Ishmael, which means God hears. And in her reflection and in her redirection, she feels seen by God. Her despair shows her a God that not only hears, but a God who sees. She is so overwhelmed at this transitional moment in her despair that she does something quite revolutionary. She names God El Roy, which is translated as the God who sees. It's quite a moment. The late writer Rachel Held Evans summarizes the story like this. There is just one person in all of sacred scripture who dared to name God, and it wasn't a priest, a prophet, a warrior, or a king. It was Hagar, a foreigner, a woman, and a slave. Showing, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter your emotional state, it doesn't matter your status in life, you are seen. Yes, Hagar, a foreigner, a woman, and a slave is seen, but where are we seen? I really had to ponder that. It isn't easy. Being seen is more of an intuitive feeling than a prescriptive action. For me, being seen is the feeling that the seer is connected to my most authentic self underneath the trappings of my clothes, my skin suit, my gender identity, my demographics, and my ethnicity. And when I see someone, I look beyond a diagnosis, their clothing, their education, and their zip code to see the human soul and where that soul wants to connect. Writer Elizabeth Gilbert says, to be fully seen by somebody and loved anyhow, that's a human offering that borders on the miraculous. Indeed, the opposite of loneliness does not involve being seen. Whether you are, indeed, the opposite of loneliness does involve being seen, whether you are a senior at Yale or a slave in the ancient Middle East. But what does it mean to feel lonely and unseen? I thought of all the places that I have been very lonely in my life. These places included fancy cocktail parties, trying to make small talk, large weddings, the Pacific Coast Highway at rush hour, and a few very awkward business lunches. All of these places were full of people, yet they compromise me and they make up some of my loneliest memories. They all occurred at low times in my life when I simply went through the motions with little connection to anyone much less somebody who could see and address more than today's weather or a commentary on the food presentation. Yet there have been those surprising times where I have been seen. One of them was in New York City on September 11, 2001. That morning, I dropped my daughter off for her first day of preschool on 64th Street and headed to work. 
the subway announcement said that there was no service past 14th Street due to police activity at the World Trade Center. But I was only going to 34th Street. I was fine. While I waited for the subway, people were talking about a plane crashing into the World Trade Center. I envisioned from someone, someone from Teterow Airport on an ill-fated mission. I got out at 34th and 6th, Herald Square, and looked downtown with hundreds of others gawking at the sight. Watching the North Tower emitting its powerful smoke street steam made me numb. I had friends who worked there. Many others did too. I went to my office. I called my parents in the Midwest to let them know I was okay and attempted to do some work. That lasted five minutes before the entire office was buzzing with stories of more plane crashes. We had no television at the office, so we went to the coffee shop downstairs who kept a small TV behind their register. Nobody was ordering coffee and bagels. We were all staring at this super tiny TV with mouths gaping and spirits sinking. This wasn't a plane from Teterboro. Everyone was silent. We were all equally stunned and shocked. In that moment, nothing separated me and my coworkers from any person in that coffee shop. We all saw and felt the same horror. Time seemed to stand still. Once the awareness of a pervasive horror was upon us and our emotional paralysis eased slightly, we collected our things. I started my march uptown to reunite with my family. There was no cell phone signal or public transportation available. Traffic wasn't really moving, and people walked in the middle of the street. Cabbies had their doors open, and groups of strangers would gather around so we could have a chance to hear what was going on. We were all extras on this horror set. We all shared. We felt confused and scared. We all saw each other. When the sea of humanity walking uptown and crosstown revealed someone stopping to soothe a blister or simply cry, they were seen and consoled by strangers. When I arrived home to my Upper West Side high-rise, neighbors greeted neighbors with hugs and prolonged glances, even though we did not know each other's names. We had lived together for months, and in some cases years, and this was the first time we saw each other with a really meaningful glance. The seeing extended beyond my building. For the next 24 to 36 hours, every human I encountered, from cab drivers to baristas to cashiers at the grocery store, to people on the street of all ages, races, and ethnicities, every human I encountered exchanged the same deep glance and implicit greeting that I interpreted as saying, I see you, fellow human. I see your soul. You and I are vulnerable. We are scared and we are together. We are so many things, but we're not alone. We are walking together. I will never forget being seen soul to soul by complete strangers on one of the most terrifying days of my life. In fact, seeing and being seen this way on this day was the essay topic for my application to Divinity School in 2010.
And while I try to make it part of my life every day, I will never forget this feeling I had on September 11th. Whatever feelings you hold today about September 11th, I see you. Possibly scared, possibly humbled, but we are together as companions and we are held in this community. If there is no human beyond the sight of God, then how do we take that practice back into our own lives? We are a community that proclaims everyone is welcomed, loved, and called. It is our very mission to know the love of God and share it. We believe that the purpose of a faith community is to walk in God's ways of making sure everyone is loved and cared for, that everyone has a place, and that everyone is truly seen. The more we see the soul of others and allow them to connect to the soul in us, the richer and more expansive our lives will be. In the words of writer Sarah Durham Wilson, we create a sacred world by treating everyone as if they are sacred until the sacred in them remembers. As we enter into our first full fall season without the immediate threat of COVID, and as we move into our homecoming weekend next Sunday, may God draw us close as a community full of compassion, faith, and hope. May we see ourselves connected to each other and to all our neighbors. In doing so, it will allow others to see us too, and we will all enjoy a deeper connection to the sacred within all of us. May it be so. Amen.